When it comes to the words and works of Jesus Christ, no one can finally remain silent. In the end, everyone says something. Everyone takes sides. Does that make sense? Everyone. It's unavoidable. When Jesus and his gospel are proclaimed accurately, there will be division. Such in the case in our passage this morning. Some will believe. Some will refuse to confess Jesus Christ as Savior. You got both sides. It's unavoidable. In the process, however, in proclaiming the gospel, we dare not remake the gospel to encourage more people to trust him. You don't improvise it. You don't reshape it. You don't rethink it. You don't re-anything to it. You keep faithfully preaching the good news, knowing that it's going to what? Divide. Divide what? Relationships. Relationships. They must hear him as he is revealed in Scripture. Or they will not have heard him at all. Any other Jesus is a false Jesus, an unscriptural Jesus. So having said that, let's stand together and read our passage this morning. The Gospel of John, chapter 7. We're going to go verses 40 through 53. Verses 40 through 53. John writes, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still, others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Verse 43, so a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, that is he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. I love this statement. Everyone went to his home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we're here to learn. And not just learn, dear God, we want to live in a way that is pleasing to you. And so we come to the wonderful words of life, the life-giving words, the words that save, the words that also sanctify and set us apart. God, the words that we want you to bring bare into our hearts and our souls so that we can walk away being doers of the word and not merely hearers only. And Father, we live in an ever-corrupting world where division is unavoidable and is only becoming more and more evident. And Lord God, you call us to live the same no matter what, to live lives that are pleasing to you, to live lives that are billboards to those who don't believe that say Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. And so, Father, train, teach us this morning through your word how to live in the midst of division, how to live with family members who are not believers or co-workers or or neighbors, how to live with them. What are we to do, God? How are we supposed to act? What are we to say? Please, dear God, fill in those questions with the answers from your word that we might be true salt and true light in a lost and fallen world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You may sit down. In our passage this morning, John describes various responses from the crowd. Even one of the responses that people believe, right? Right? Verse 41, others were saying, this is the Christ. Earlier on in chapter 7, we see that verse 31, but many of the crowd believed in him, but many did not. So let me just walk through 40, 41, and 42 just for a second. We'll just walk through these verses for a moment or two. 
Listen to this. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. The prophet referred back into in the Pentateuch. We talked about weeks ago. So some were saying, this is that prophet. Verse 41, others were saying, but this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the one promised in the Old Testament, the Savior. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? In other words, this Jesus that you say is the Messiah, he's from Galilee. We don't think he's from Bethlehem, so you can't be right there. And that's why they argue in verse 42, is not the scripture that said that Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was. We understand he did, but they at that time did not. He was simply the son of Mary and Joseph. And so what does John say in verse 43? How does John take this, what's going on there? What does he say? Verse 43, a division occurred in the crowd because of him. That is because of Christ. Let's say it this way. The gospel divides, right? The gospel divides. It's simply what is being said here or described what is happening. The gospel divides. You go to verses 45 and through 47, and it's the religious leaders who wanted to seize him. So out of this division, you have believers, and then you have all these unbelievers who for various reasons would not be, that do not believe that he is the Christ. Out of these unbelievers, there's this antagonistic group, okay, that wanted to seize him and shut him up. Those were the religious leaders. He was a threat to them and their environment, their existence, their own self-righteousness. He was a threat to them. He was saying, your system is corrupt. It's full of sin. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. So whatever you've set up over generations and generations and generations has not worked. You cannot come to the Father on your own by obeying the law, but you must come through me. I am the Messiah. And so the religious leaders... They bucked up against him, and they wanted to seize him, to arrest him, and eventually to have him killed. And we know by the end of the story, that's exactly what happens. But I love the end of verse 44. But no one laid hands on him because God was sovereignly in control. It was not his time yet. It wouldn't happen for six more months in the springtime where he would be crucified, buried, but then risen. So we see in verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priest because the priests and Pharisees wanted the officers to go get him and seize him, but they came back empty-handed. You see that? And so they said to him, why didn't you bring him with him? The Pharisees are saying, we told you to go get him. Why didn't you bring him back? The officers said in verse 46, never has a man spoken in this the way this man speaks. He speaks with authority. He handles the scriptures better than you. Maybe as part of the conversation. But it was with such authority. He said such a handle of the scriptures, not quoting a few verses here and there, but really understanding in a different way than the scribes and Pharisees, the Old Testament. And so the Pharisees answered and they said, What, have you been led astray too? Have you been deceived? Because they're the ones who believe that Jesus is counterfeit. Now, there's some observations to be made here. There's a number of them. Number one, listen to this. People divide over who Christ is. That means the gospel divides. You've got to ask the question, why? Why? Now, listen to this. Because the Bible says there's only two ways, the right way and the wrong way. Later on in the gospel of John chapter 14, we're going to read this. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Articulate, the way. Not, you know, one of the ways, the way. And so Thomas, inquiring minds, want to know more specifically, what's the way? And so he says, and Thomas asks in in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus responds, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's two ways. There's the right way and the wrong way. The right way is Christ. Every other way is the wrong way. There's also two gates. Two gates. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 7 for a moment. 
Matthew chapter 7. 13 and 14. Listen to this. Talking to this multitude smattered in the crowd as the religious leaders and all kinds of Jewish people from various backgrounds and lifestyles. And he says this, enter through the narrow gate. There's only two gates. The first one he mentions the narrow gate. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For this reason, the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. There's not only two ways, there are only two gates. There's also two doors. If you want to go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. The Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 7, 8, and 9. Listen to this. Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. There are two ways, two gates, two doors. There's also two kinds of people. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 describes that there are sheep and goats. Are you getting the picture? There's no in-between here, folks. There's not, as Oprah Winfrey says, many ways to God. If that's what you believe it is, you're right. If you believe over here, in other words, you, to be tolerant, to, to be a Christian is to be narrow. To be a Christian is to be intolerant. Why? Because our Savior has taught that he is the way, that he is the door, that he is the truth, that there is no other. And, and as we go further on in life in this culture, it's only going to become more antagonistic towards us as our culture continues to devolve. When the culture's rallying cry is be tolerant of all truths, what they are telling us is that we must compromise what we believe. We must change what we believe. We must let go of what we believe in order to be accepted by our culture. But we cannot. Matthew 25, verse 31. Excuse me, yeah, 31 through 33. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, what a beautiful scene. He will sit on his glorious thrones. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another the shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Later on, John, who wrote this gospel, writes First John, the letter of 1 John. And in chapter 3, verse 10, he makes a distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil. So here's, here's the reason why the gospel divides. is because there's two ways, the right way and the wrong way. There's two gates, the narrow way and the broad way. There are two doors, Christ and every other door, person. There's two kinds of people, sheep and goats, children of God and the children of the devil. And why? Because there's only two destinations. Heaven and hell. Now, if I got on NBC News tonight and share what I just did, forget it. Because more and more we live in a society where we're casting our pearl, the pearl, that which is of great value, the gospel, before swine. People have heard and getting harder and harder and reject it more and more and more. That's one of the observations to be made just in this text this morning, in our text this morning. Second of all, among those who do not believe Jesus' word, do not believe the gospel, there are various degrees of animosity. You see that in our text this morning. Some are saying, well, this is the prophet. They didn't want to seize him. They, you know, they, you know he's, he's just wrong. Or, or he's this guy, but he's really not the Messiah. Be a little gracious to him. Others are saying, this is the Christ. But others were saying, surely, this is not the Christ. He, he, he's got to come from... Bethlehem. And so John describes this division, but in this division, we see in verses 44 and following that some of them who didn't believe in him were antagonistic and they wanted to seize him and want him dead. 
So there are various degrees of animosity. In our own text here, there are those who believe he's a prophet, those who believe he's an imposter. And those who believed he was an imposter wanted him gone. He disrupted their system, their lifestyle. They were in a comfort zone. Don't tell me I'm a sinner. Don't tell me that I'm not a good person. Don't tell me I'm going to go to hell if I don't believe in Jesus. God's not like that. You get the picture. Nothing new under the sun, is there? How about number three? Division happens not only among crowds, but among friends and family. So I admit, the context in John 7 is this crowd. Okay, you see division amongst the crowd. But we can go to Luke chapter 12, verses 49 and following, and it reads this. Jesus says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Wow. Wait a minute. I thought you came to seek and to save that which was lost. Yes, his first coming. But his second coming is going to be like fire. It's going to be judgment. But not only that, even while he came to seek and to save that which was lost, in the process of him saving, there's going to, one of the repercussions is division, even in your family. Here he goes. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until, until it's accomplished. I got, I'm going to the cross. But baptism, I'm going to go die. I'm going to actually accomplish redemption for for those the Father has given me, for those who believe in me, I'm going to accomplish it for them because it's not going to be anything you accomplish. I'm going to do this for them. Verse 51, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. He's making peace between the, bet- between the believer and God. He's making peace this way, right? With those he's chosen, with those the Father gives to him. He's making peace with those who by faith trust in Christ But on this level now, in these relationships, it's going to create turmoil and division. You get the picture? While he came to make peace this way between the Father and those who believe in the Son, on this angle, okay, horizontally in relationships among neighbors and friends and coworkers or even family, it's going to create chaos at times. For He explains, for this reason, verse 52, for from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son. So first of all, in verse 52, you've got a family of five, you're going to have some believe and some won't, and that's going to create what? Division. Verse 53, he gets even narrower here. They will be divided, father against son. Son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You get the picture? Between those who believe and those who don't. That's why Jesus says, count the cost in following me. Actually, actually following me it's going to wreak havoc maybe in some of your earthly relationships. And you need to count the cost of what it means to follow me. A king does not go into battle without counting the cost of that battle, how many soldiers he'll lose. What do you, need? you don't build a house or a building without counting the cost, what it's going to take. You don't follow Christ without counting the cost. It might cost you an earthly relationship even in your own family. See what's going on here. Wow. Now here's what also happens. Let's kind of expound on that for a minute. Who in this room has a family member that's not saved? Whether it's immediate or, or long distance cousins, whatever, someone you know, even a neighbor. But he really he's driving this home, literally, to your house, okay, in your family relationships. How have you many of you tried to witness to them? What's the response been? Negative. Maybe even a little antagonistic. But there's always, you can always have peace in those relationships if you'd never mentioned Jesus. Think about it for a minute. When, When you don't talk about Jesus or don't talk about their soul or don't talk about heaven and hell, then that family member who is lost, you're going to have peace in that relationship. They're going to like you. 
But the moment you want to step in and look for that little crack, the door to open, to talk about Christ, to talk about their soul and their need for the Savior, they get a little what? Antagonistic. They don't want to talk about it. Why is that? It's not because they don't like you. It's because of Christ. He comes in and divides. And because he has put a love in our heart for himself, that begins to change our lives, begins to change the way we live, the way we think. Our affections are stirred up towards him now. We, don't, we no longer want to do the things we used to do because grace changes everything. Little sign over here. It says grace changes everything. It changes us from the inside then outward. So what do we do? This could turn into a topical sermon, really, at this point. What do we do? I mean, it's difficult because we live in a culture where people are Christian in name only. And sometimes our loved ones who are unbelievers, well, they'll say, oh, I'm a Christian. And so we got another issue altogether is we got a false understanding of what a Christian really truly is. And so they're nominally a Christian in name only because they were raised that way or because we're kind of a Christian nation. We kind of brought up that way. You know, everybody can be as a Christian, so I'm, I'm okay. And then you're coming from the Bible's definition of a Christian, and you're going, no, you're not. I don't see any evidence whatsoever. And yet, I mean, you just can't go there because that just totally offends them. And so it's difficult so what is our response? How then shall we live in the midst of this division, in the midst of these circumstances? How do we as believers in Christ live with and among family members who do not follow Christ? After all, listen, listen, after all, listen to this. It's not the evangelist's responsibility alone. It's not the pastor's responsibility alone. It's the church's responsibility to lead sinners to Christ. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it starts at home. It starts at home. Because that's where the difference is seen up front. Well, I want you to turn to First Peter. And I'll explain why as you're turning there. To encourage believers in the similar circumstances that we're talking about, in the midst of this division, in the midst of divided relationships, Peter wrote First Peter, Christians who experience various forms of persecution and suffering, as a result of their faith, as a result of them following Christ, they face slander and ridicule and discrimination all because of Jesus. And they faced it in their family. They faced it in their culture and their society, on and on and on. Now, in 64 AD, as both 64, 65 AD, this was written. Nero burnt much, if not almost all, of Rome in 64 AD. He burned it down. He wanted to rebuild a bigger Rome, so a bigger Rome. So he wanted to, he had to get rid of so, a lot of those buildings before he could rebuild, right? He didn't have a demolition crew, so he just did it by fire. It was a huge destruction. The Romans were just devastated over this. So Nero realized that he had to redirect the people's hostility. So what does he do? He used the Christians as a scapegoat. And he blamed them. He blamed them. I mean, they were already hated because of their association with Jews. Okay, number one. Number two, because they were hostile to the current. Christians are hostile or unwelcoming. I just like the word hostile. There's nothing wrong with that word. They were hostile to the Roman culture, which was very pagan. Sound familiar? You're hated because you love Israel, and you're hated because you don't like the culture the sinful culture, the system that is there. Sound familiar? Right? Okay. Just want to make sure you got that. So their opposition to the Roman culture. So he quickly spread the word that Christians set these fires. Oh, okay. And they bought into it. So Peter writes to these Christians to encourage them to live effectively as salt and light in a hostile world. That's why you have to those who reside as aliens scattered. As a result of the Roman persecution, what happens? They get, they get scattered, right? They, they flee. They run. There are four things we learn. Four things. Number one, it takes the right attitude. Number two, the right perspective. Number three, the right behavior. And number four, the right words. 
the right attitude, the right perspective, the right behavior, and the right words. What I'm doing here is taking the scenario, the circumstances of the Christians in Rome and how because of Nero and the persecution, and because they wanted to follow Christ, it divided their relationships, okay? It even does it in the home, if you look at chapter 3. A wife who's living with a husband that's disobedient to the word, and then verse 7, he switches it. Husbands in the same way, live with your wives when they are disobedient to the word. And that can either be interpreted a Christian who is wayward or one who is not a Christian. Commentators, <laughs> here you go, divide on that specific meaning. But the applications are there. So number one, when we, when we live with family members, it, it, you know, that don't see the way we see, they don't love Christ the way we don't want to follow Christ, number one, we are to have the right attitude. Look at verse one, chapter one, excuse me, verse three. It's an attitude of hope. Beloved, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3. Who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to what? To what? A living hope. Number one, attitude. Unbelievers need to see that we're hopeful people. We have hope. Our hope is not that next week our country is going to change. Our hope is not next week anything in society is going to get better. Our hope is that Christ is coming. That's our hope. Our loved one, our king who died for me, who died, he's coming again to get me. That's called the believer's blessed hope. We're born again. We're made alive unto a hope. If someone says, I'm born again, I believe in Jesus, but have no hope, you've got to wonder if they understand the gospel. Right? The gospel includes this wonderful Hope that Jesus is coming again. We sang it in one of our hymns this morning. So it means the right attitude. The right attitude is a hopeful attitude. No, verse 6, it's a joyful attitude. Listen to this. Meanwhile, back on the planet Earth, we, we have a hope that Christ is coming. But what, how do we deal with the everyday stuff? Particularly the suffering, the persecution. Look at verse 6. In this you greatly what? Rejoice. So a Christian's attitude is a hopeful attitude, but it's a joyful attitude. It's not joyful in the circumstances and the trials, but it's joyful over what God does with them. God is in the character-building business, not that my life would be made comfortable. You get that? Look at verse 5. Who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice that's future. That's that hope. In this. In, what do you mean in this? In this, in verse 5, in this salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, you greatly rejoice. Even though today, listen to this. Here's what, here's what Peter's writing about. Even though today you're hurting. Even though today you've got this relationship that's been severed because you're now a follower of Christ and some of your friends and family members have refused to do that, even though that hurts you, even though that relationship is severed, you still have joy because of the salvation which will finally in its finality be revealed when Christ comes again. You see that? We don't understand all of salvation at this moment right now as I'm preaching. There's an aspect of salvation still to be revealed that we are told about, but we really don't have a clue about it till Jesus comes. Grace is not done, folks. Get that. Grace is not finished. It's still abounding more and more and more. And the ultimate abounding of grace is when the king comes back to get his subjects. It's our blessed hope, and that's our joy. That's why you can have joy even though you're experiencing pain. So this attitude, is, be hopeful. And may people see that hopefulness. Be joyful. May people see your joyfulness. When I mean people, I mean your loved ones who do not believe, your friends, your coworkers. And how about be Faithful. Verse 7, so that the proof of your faith 
being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice how Peter over and over and over again is looking forward, looking forward, looking forward, the revelation of Jesus Christ in verse 7. Verse 5, the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, still looking forward. Verse 3, to a living hope, looking forward. Here's the attitude the Christian looks forward. The Christian looks forward. Are you looking forward with joy? Do you look forward with hope? Because know what that does? It makes you faithful today. You wonder why someone's not faithful today? It's because they do not look forward in hope. And they're not joyful over what God has for them in the future. It stifles faithfulness for today. So the right attitude is so key. Let's go on to verse 13 of chapter 1. There's one more. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. This Christian attitude is a sobering attitude. It's sobering. It means be alert and ready. Why? Because you have this hope. The imminent return of Christ... He, the rapture, I'll put it, the rapture, he'll come in the clouds. He's going to come halfway. We're going to be caught up with him. That's, okay, then there's a second coming. But this, he's, he's talking about looking forward to when he's coming again. We'll be caught up with him because he's going to come get us. He won't come all the way to earth, but he will meet us in the air. And those who have that mindset, remember, prepare your minds for action, are, are sober-minded. They're sober in spirit. That means they're always on alert, always ready, knowing that at any moment Christ could come, how will he find me? Oh, wait a minute. Look at the rest of verse 13. Fix your hope. There it is. Completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's fourth time he's talking about our future, the revelation of Christ. You know what he's doing here also as a side note? He is taking end times and raising it before our very eyes. It's not just important to understand what Jesus has done for me on the cross. It's just as important that what he's going to still yet do for us as his children, as his subjects. He's coming again. Amen? Wow. So this is what it means to have the right attitude, to be, to be hopeful, to look forward to and to be joyful, to be faithful, to be alert and ready. This leads to the right perspective. It's not, not only having the right attitude we just described in Peter, but Peter will also tell us about the right perspective. Go to chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, and then 9 through 11. Perspective, perspective, perspective. Listen to verse 4, and coming to him as to living stones, which he has been, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. That is coming to Christ. He is the living stone. Men reject him. But to those who believe in him, he's precious. In the sight of God, and therefore precious in our sight. Look at verse 5. You also as living stones. He is the stone. We are now little stones. Are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We now labor for him. We pray. We labor. Right? We, we exist for him. Let's go on down verse 8. The middle of verse 8. For they stumble. The unbeliever stumbles. Because they are disobedient to the word. The believer who trusts in him strives to be obedient to the word. We don't stumble over the stone over Christ, but they do. Thus causing what? Division, right? And he says, and to this doom they were also appointed. That is the unbeliever. That means their destination is what? Hell. Remember, there's only two destinations. Now go to verse 9. Here it is. Listen to this. This is us. This is the church. This is the follower of Christ. But you, emphatically, not they, but you. This is you right now. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's you. So that why? You may proclaim the excellencies 
of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that you may proclaim the greatness of God, his excellencies in his son. For you were once not a people, but now you are a people of God. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What does this mean for me today? What does it mean for you today? Look at verse 11. It means you're an alien. You're a stranger to this world. You are now different. And your life will begin to show how different you are more and more and more as your faith increases, as your faith is more mature, right? As you are sanctified and set apart, the more you are conformed to the image of Christ, the more alien and strange you're going to look to a lost and fallen world. Here's why. Look at verse 11 again. I urge you as alien strangers to what? Abstain from fleshly lusts. The world does not care to abstain from fleshly lusts. They indulge in them. But we as Christians buck against that kind of culture, don't we? So we don't go there. We don't want to follow our lusts. We don't want to desire after those things that just, those, those temporal fulfillments that Satan tries to trick us into thinking that they're okay. And I could just go over a gamut of them, but you know in your heart what they are. Lusts, right? You know that, that, that God intended sex, okay, for marriage. I can say that because he created it, by the way, right? Get that, don't you? We, we better get that part, okay? But he, he created it to be in a certain context of marriage. And he, he created us to where our eyes would stay on our own wives, right? And not go other places. So it's a wonderful thing. Sin comes in and perverts what God's created. And one of the things that Satan loves to pervert is sex. And just appeal to our lusts over and over again to get us to increase this lustful chaos in society and culture. And so he says, no, we as Christians, we abstain from lusty lust, which what? Listen to this, wage war against the soul. Notice he doesn't say it wages war against the body, against the soul. It wages war here. And then once it can maybe get some inroads into my soul, and then it begins to play itself out in fulfilling these lustful, sinful habits. What's he just warfare is internal. Notice he says soul. I think it's so key there. So I have this right perspective that we are a chosen race, a pearl, he's a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we will pro proclaim the excellencies of him. That's why we abstain from fleshly lusts, is so that we can proclaim his excellencies. It's not we abstain from fleshly lusts so we can be a good people. It's not so that we can be holier than thou. It's not to look good in front of others. It's so we push those things aside, we mortify our flesh, we say no to those lustly passions, and we say yes because I want to magnify Christ. If it's just saying no to fleshly desires, and, and we're not desiring to magnify Christ, it's just behaviorism. It's not Christianity. It's a false Christianity. It's, it's, it's being moral without Jesus. It's a Christless Christianity. Are you with me there? becomes legalistic. So it's not only the right attitude, it's the right perspective. Whose we are. Notice it says we are his possession. I don't possess God. God possesses me. It's not a man-centered gospel. It's God-centered. It's about him and what he wants to do. And that's why he urges it as aliens and strangers to abstain. Number three, the right behavior. Not only the right attitude, not only the right perspective, but the right behavior. Listen to this, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them. There it is, plain as day, glorify God in the day of visitation. Right? Here's what he's saying in a nutshell. Live above reproach. Don't give the enemy any ammunition to attack you and your Savior. Are you with me? Don't give the enemy any ammunition in your behavior that, 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 to, to attack you. 
You see, people need not only to hear the gospel, they need to see the power of the gospel in our lives. Hello. This is it in a nutshell. People not only need to hear the gospel, they need to see the power of the gospel in our lives. The greatest witness is not only the one who necessarily can articulate the gospel the best, but the one who lives it before others to see. You see, you've got to provoke a question out of them. And it's only by living differently for somebody else, our Savior, that will provoke them to ask the question, what are you hoping for? What are you, why are you joyful? You're really different. That's what leads to the gospel. So when you share the gospel, you're not going to get an antagonistic response because you've really provoked them to think. But it begins with the way we live, not what we say. What does this entail? Real quick, just real quick. Submission. He talks about submission as he goes on. Submission to governing authorities, verse 13. If we always go around bellyaching about our government, we're no different than the culture around us. They're going to see there's no difference between me and you. What do you have that I don't? What about... Submitting to our employers, verse 18, servants, be submissive. In other words, here, here's the picture. The last thing we would be thinking about as citizens of the United States, as Americans, is submissiveness. When you talk about keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, Peter automatically goes, the Holy Spirit moved Peter to go on and talk about submissiveness. What? Really? In an independent, free society? Submission? Yes. Submission to Christ, submission to governing authorities, submission to my bosses at work. Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, even when they mistreat you, even when they're unreasonable, even when they ask you to do unreasonable things, not contrary to Scripture. Then you can politely say, you know, risking your job, no thank you, it goes against Scripture. But oftentimes they just ask you to do things that really aren't contrary to Scripture, but they're not very kind, not very thoughtful, not very nice. You submit. You go on to chapter 3, he brings it home. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands. I mean, this theme of submission just keeps going and going and building and building. And that's something you wouldn't expect that when he talks about behavior, Christian behavior. He is highlighting submissiveness. You go on to chapter four, excuse me, chapter five is submitting to even the leadership in the church. They're in authority. Elders, chapter five, verses one, two, three, and four. Verse five, you younger men likewise be subject. There's that root word for submission, submission, be subject to your elders. And ultimately, everybody else, one degree or another, practice submission one to another. You see what's going on here? That's God's way, folks. That's not man's way for sure. Man's way is the opposite. This is God saying, this is what will get people's attention that don't know me. You want to get the attention of a loved one, a neighbor, a coworker that does not know Christ, this is how you do it. You live and you act differently than the society, the culture that we live in. This is the power of the gospel. And that's why it's not so much about the words that comes out of our mouths, but the lives that we live. And they might say, how can you put up with a boss like that? And you can simply say, you don't have to quote these, but in your mind you're going to go, you know, First Peter chapter 1, as you're thinking, uh, there's trials in my life. My boss is one of my trials. But I know the purpose of that is to build my character in the image of Christ. And so I take joy in what my father's doing with me. I take joy in the fact that my father's building my character using that boss that asks difficult things from me, using a government that I don't like. You see that? Wow. One more thing this behavior includes, and I want you to get this. We don't think about it very much, but this behavior includes the desire to be with other Christians. Write it down. Write it down. In a large part, this is an aspect of behavior 
that involves body life. Peter mentions it in chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for what? A sincere love of the brethren. The word sincere means unhypocritical. But notice what he says next in chapter 1, verse 22. Fervently love. Fervently love one another from the heart. What does it mean fervently? Well, that use fervent is, is used in reference to an athlete who strives in the workout room to build muscle, that strives on the track to build endurance, and he's constantly striving, striving. He's diligent. That's what it means. And folks, what he's saying is we are a folks that strives to love one another. Just like the athlete must be in the weight room, we must meet with one another consistently, habitually, learning one another. Are you with? Oh, are you getting this now? It's not enough to come to church for an hour on a Sunday morning. You hear wonderful preaching. Edit that one from the message. But you get the picture. It, 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 fervently love one another from the heart. You have to take time. It's, it's the idea of diligence. You've got to put effort into it. Strenuous effort. When you don't feel like it, do it anyway. But I'm tired. Go anyway. I need to sleep in. Go anyway. I'm too tired to get with people to pray. Go pray anyway. It's called being a disciple. Wait a minute. Forgive me for my sarcasm. Disciple means discipline. That's where we get the the English word discipline from. And so an athlete is what? Very disciplined. And he fervently strives in the workout room and on the track to build his muscle and to build his endurance. That is the idea that Peter is using here when he says fervently love one another from the heart. And if you're sincere about it, it will come from the heart. And if you're struggling in your heart to be with other believers, then just get on your knees and ask God for help. God, then change my heart so I want to be with them. That's why persecution is so beautiful. You know what it causes? You know what it causes? You know this. It causes the church to depend upon one another more and more and more. You see that? It brings us together. That's another beauty of persecution and suffering. It causes us to come together to encourage and to support and to love one another because we're not going to get it out there in a lost and fallen world. Amen? All right. Finally. The right words, the right attitude, the right perspective, the right behavior, the right words. Go to chapter 3 of 1 Peter, verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the what? The hope that is in you. Yet, with a certain attitude of gentleness and reverence. We're going to end with this one. The word defense is used in a formal and informal setting. A formal sense like before a judge. It's official. And then an informal sense where someone just comes up to you and and inquires about you. Why are you this way? I think Peter's intending it in both ways. Paul did it officially, okay? He did it in a formal way and informal way. But Peter tells us to be ready for both here. And that's how he uses the word defense in a general sense, meaning both formally in an official capacity and informally as people just come up to you and inquire about the hope that is in you. In either case, it's our responsibility to be ready. To be ready. To say, it's not me. It's not about being good. It's not, just, it's not about right behavior. It's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. What has changed me is really not a what, it's a who. Who has changed me is him. He loved me enough to die for me. And he's opened up my heart to embrace him as my Lord and Savior. He has caused me to fall in love for him. He died. He rose again for me, and he's coming again to get me, and that's the difference you see in my life. That's why I have hope. That's why I have joy. That's why my behavior's changed. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. For the time has already passed. It's sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, those desires of the flesh. The time has passed. It's behind you. Your life has changed. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, all that's behind you. 
Verse 4, in all this, they, the unbelievers, are surprised that you do not run with them any longer into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you for it. They see a difference in your life. You no longer go drinking with your drinking buddies anymore. You no longer hang around with that unbelieving crowd anymore the way you used to your whole life. And they see that difference, and so they malign you. They go, oh, come on, man. What's wrong with you? Come on, come on. I had pressure like that the first year I trusted Christ, particularly when I was 20. My buddies and all that stuff. Oh, man, the, the constant pull, pull, pull. Come on, come on. But God had hold of me. See, he does that to his children. To where you begin to say, no, thank you. No, thank you. I don't live to please myself anymore. I don't live to please my own lusts. Actually, I fight against them now because I want to please the one who died for me. Simple answer. Simple answer. The answer is Christ. The answer is Christ. And we need to be ready because in verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord is a continuing ongoing thing. The more we do that, the more the world's going to see a difference in us. And the more they're going to see that wedge, that division. But yet this is how Christ calls us to live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is absolutely contrary to the world. It's contrary to the world's system. It's contrary to Satan himself. And God, we live in a world where these divisions have become more and more enhanced, pronounced. And yet, Father, you tell us to be submissive to your lordship by being submissive to all the other authorities that you have placed in our lives. And God, that is so anti-culture. That is so opposite of what we are being fed each and every day from our society and our culture. Help us to stand firmly on your word, firmly on Christ. Sanctify us, O God. Make us more and more different from society around us each and every day. And may the world take note. May our loved ones take note, our friends, our coworkers that don't know Christ take note. And may our lives compel them to ask about the hope that is in us. And Father, he is none other than Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And all God's people said, amen.